Uh, so we are in our Philippines series, and this is our third one uh, that we started. Um, and we are Philippians chapter 1, and it's 19 to 26. To be or not to be? That is the question. Can anybody tell me where this famous written phrase comes from? So you've actually got people telling me which play it's in. Who wrote this phrase? Shakespeare. Who can tell me which play it was from? I've had a few people calling out. Hamlet. And who can tell me what do these words actually mean? Maybe less of you are a little bit more comfortable with that. But many of us, we are so familiar with these words. But actually, when we think about the context that it's in and understanding the play of Hamlet, we don't have that context often. And so we understand this phrase, but actually pushed. A lot of us struggle to explain what this phrase actually means. And um, I think actually some of the phrases that we're looking at in Philippines, we're looking at 11 phrases within Philippines. The same can be true of these phrases. We know a lot of these phrases so well. We can tell you which letter from the Bible they're in, but push to explain them, we actually struggle. And you know, the text this morning, I think out of any of the texts that we're looking at, for me, there's a phrase in here that I think is, is probably the best known phrase in Philippians. And I would say, actually, given the, given the push to say, listen, what does this actually mean? How does it affect how we do life? I think it's really quite difficult. So uh, let's turn to it. If you've got your Bibles, if not, it's here on the screen. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. But that with full courage, now, as always... Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, well, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. As I said, we are going through this series. We've had Matt and Chris preach so far in this series, and at the beginning we get, um, we get to understand what's happening here for Paul. He is under house arrest. He is chained to a Roman guard 24-7. Uh, probably taken in eight-hour shifts, and um, he's been through some in- incredibly challenging circumstances so far. Okay, he has obviously the circumstances Paul goes through in his life, things like shipwreck, beatings, betrayals, and um, yet these words that we see at the very beginning of this passage, rejoice. The words joy and rejoice, as Matt mentioned, come sixteen times in just a hundred and four verses in this letter. This is a letter that is all about the joy of the Lord, okay? And um, he starts this letter with greetings and a prayer to the Philippian church. And he moves on. We saw last week that he's moving on to looking at his present circumstances as he's chained to this God and what that means and how actually the gospel is still breaking out 
even though he's chained to these gods. These gods are being converted to Christ. And now he moves on to just looking and discussing his future. And he actually lays out his absolute focus and ambition for the glory of Christ and for the health of the Philippian church. And I can honestly say, as I have dwelt on this passage this week, this is a, Matt, Matt mentioned createments. And it's this idea that actually they're statements that are meant to create a total change of lifestyle. And for me, dwelling on this passage, it has been remarkable this week. And I'm really prov- I've been really provoked. It's almost like my gaze has just, sometimes our gaze gets shifted slightly. And it's like God has reconnected my gaze. And so I believe for, for many of us here this morning, this word is going to have a massive impact on the way that we live. So we're just going to run through, just because the seven verses, it's quite easy to do that. Run through and just look at a few things, pick them up. We are going to focus on this for me to live as Christ, to die as gain as we get there. But I wanted to pick up just as we run through this passage, what's going on. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul is anticipating here his deliverance. And whether that is his deliverance from this situation or his deliverance for eternity, it's people don't know. Um, but I think the funny thing is, in, in difficult circumstances, as we've talked about, that Paul's in, he's under house arrest, he is talking here about the things that bring him most joy, okay? When he is going through difficult circumstances, there are two things mentioned in this passage that bring him joy. And it's really important for us to just see what those are. The first is prayer, okay? The prayers of the church that are going on. And I think so often it's really easy to look at Paul and look at his life and think, do you know what? He is this super confident um, he is, he's almost this, in a sense, he feels a little bit like a lone ranger, that it doesn't matter what happens to him, he just keeps getting up. You know, he gets beaten, he gets stoned near to death, and yet he gets up again and he goes for the gospel. And I think we can see him as some kind of invincible, super high capacity guy, can't we? Actually, what we see here in this first verse is a little bit of vulnerability from Paul. He's expressing that actually what brings him joy, what he needs is the prayers of the church, the prayers of the saints. And they make a huge difference to him as he ventures through serving other cities, planting churches. I think that's got to be so important for us because prayer, as we know, is, is hard, isn't it? It's one of those things that, you know, the disciples had to be taught, this is how to pray because it's difficult. And I was thinking about Kathy for us as a church. When she goes off to other countries, um, just serving other persecuted Christians, she talks about the impact of the prayer that we have. And so actually what we've done is we've set up groups that as Kathy is facing those immediate troubles, she texts back and the church starts praying. And to see the remarkable things that God does there and then through prayer, do you know, it should make us so eager to prayer. To go, this is having an impact. This is how God works. He works through prayer. And here we see Paul saying the exact same thing here, that prayer is the thing that brings him such joy. And the second thing that he talks about is actually about Holy Spirit. He says the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And it's Pentecost Sunday today where we celebrate the gift of the Spirit, okay, that was given at Pentecost. 
And what's interesting about this word, the help? You know, the Spirit of God is described as the helper. It's a great word. But actually, in this passage, a lot of the commentators say, this word's really unhelpful. It doesn't actually explain what Paul is talking about here. He is actually talking about the supply of the Spirit. What brings him joy? It's the supply of the Spirit. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit himself, the person of the Spirit. And I think one of the dangers when we talk about helper is we, if that becomes our one dimension of how we view who he is, then we only call on him when we need help. Okay? It's a little bit like Victorian times when you think about the maids and the servants underneath and you need something and you ring the bell. And actually there's something here for Paul. He wants to express that what brings him joy, it's not about, oh, well, I need his help. Therefore, he brings me joy. It's the very person of the Spirit. It's the supply. It's the infilling of the Spirit that brings him the joy. And actually, what's even more remarkable here is that there seems to be a link between the prayers of the saints and the supply of the Holy Spirit. Okay? It seems to be linked in God's grace. There's a link here between the prayers of the saints and the supply of the Spirit. Uh, Mocha, who is a commentator, says this. The two thoughts of intercession and supply are bound so closely together by Paul that we could, without violence, translate the Greek, your prayers and the consequent supply. Your prayers and the consequent supply. And I have to be honest that in my prayer life... This is not something I've actually been used to focusing on as I pray for people when it comes to interceding for people in that situation. And yet here we see it, this beautiful mystery that actually as we pray, God does something in supplying his spirit. And I think this is remarkable. And it makes me think about people who are out on mission. It makes me think about the church here and now. Do you know, we have people who are going through difficult circumstances. Some who are struggling to hear or feel the presence of God. And we can pray for the supply of God's spirit, that they would enjoy the gift of him. We can pray that they would experience his tangible presence. Those struggling with anxiety, with mental health, this should give us a real fresh vigor to pray again as we come and we intercede for each other that God would fill us. He would supply us with him, the gift of of the Spirit. Next, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul's hope here, that's what he's expressing, his hopes and desires, is that he will not be ashamed. And you know, this is an interesting word, and actually it's mainly probably rooted back to... um, the Hebrew mindsets, where the Bible and the Proverbs and the Psalms often talks about the man of God not being put to shame, okay? And David would often use this language in the Psalms, and he'd talk, talk about it on the other side of the coin. Those who don't trust in the Lord will be put to shame. And I just want to read out Psalm 34 for you so you get an idea here. It says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord's. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant 
and their faces shall never be ashamed. Paul here, there's an expression here of wanting to magnify and exalt God in his life and everything that he's doing. And there's a desire here from him. What you're hearing is a desire that he never wants to turn away from Christ. That under these great trials, these burdens that he is going uh, through, he shall not falter in his faith. He shouldn't dishonor God in his lifetime. That he will essentially be able to run the race, pursuing God's glory till the very end. Being able to proclaim courageously for Christ, his love. And this is what he's talking about when he's talking about not wanting to be put to shame. He wants to be able to run with that passion and that perseverance without faltering in his life. And that's what the supply of the Spirit will do as he does that. So this verse here, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. When I was um, dating my wife uh, many years ago, um, we, she, we were, had a long-distance relationship. And uh, I was in Leeds and she was in Brighton. And uh, so she'd travel over for about four days at a time and stay. And then I'd take her, to the ta- take her to the train station and she'd travel back. And one time she was up and we'd had a great time together. And we got a taxi. And I, I lived in student halls at the time. And my halls of residence was opposite this taxi rank. And so it was dead easy. You could just jump into the taxi. And we jumped into this taxi, had a great time. We're traveling back and to, to the station. And there's always that reticent of, oh, I'm not going to see you for another six weeks. And um, we were traveling down this road, down the side of Tiny Tea Studio, and suddenly this taxi started spluttering. And we were so caught up with looking at each other, we started to look forward, and the taxi driver was having some kind of fit. And he turned down probably the quietest road that you could turn down in Leeds, where there wasn't any cars, and he crashed into these barriers. And immediately, we obviously knew there was something wrong. I uh, got straight on the phone. I asked Tor to get into the front and try and speak to this man. But he was, he was fitting. And we called this, this ambulance. This ambulance eventually got there. And um, this man had had a heart attack. And then he'd had a second by the time the taxi, by the time the ambulance got here. And we found out that actually he died. There we were, traveling to the station. And this taxi driver had, had died. And so that evening... It hit me quite hard, you know, the sudden shock of, man, death, it comes to us all. And yet we just don't know the hour. And I went into the taxi rank, which was an Asian taxi rank. And um, I sat down with about eight guys, all taxi drivers, and they wanted to hear the story of what had happened. And I, I, I broke fast with them as we talked about faith. And they talked about how, what the stats are for taxi drivers, and the stats for taxi drivers and death are very high. This man was only 43. And he was, I found out he was traveling home. This was his last job. He was traveling home after our job to be with his kids. He has five kids. And they talked about the fear that they have. That what happened to this guy is what they live with every day. This fear because the stats are so high for taxi drivers because they're often not eating healthily and they're not getting much exercise because they're in a car. And it was so interesting just to hear, actually, the fear that had gripped many of these guys. And exactly what they were fearful of happened to this guy. And I think for many of us, as we go through life, when we think about this issue of death, we either end up wanting to avoid talking or thinking about death, 
or we go through overly fearful about death. And Paul in this passage is facing death. We know that. And the difference here for Paul is he has a joy and a peace over his future. As we see how he handles this. Even though death appears to be imminent, he could be put to death at any point. So I want to ask the question, what is Paul talking about? To live is Christ and to die is gain. And how does that apply to us? Like, how do you apply this, this verse? And I think sometimes it's helpful to, thankfully, we have the full letter of Philippians. So it's helpful sometimes to look at the whole letter. And I want to just forward, fast forward to one verse in chapter 3. In fact, two verses, which I think sheds a lot of light on this phrase. And it's Philippians 3, 7 to 8. It says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Paul has summed up his entire life mantra in this one verse. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. His desire and motivation in this life is simply And solely about knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. It's a bit like the parable of the um, kingdom of God in Matthew. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and he bought it. Paul's absolute obsession here is Christ Jesus. He counts everything as loss compared to knowing him. So we have to ask the question here, what is it that we are living for? It might be for you that you're living for family. And actually across the UK, I would say this is a huge challenge. Because for a lot of families, it becomes the God. Everything is circulated around family. Everything is positioned around that. Every decision that we make is around family. For you, it might be career. Actually, you are determined to make yourself successful. And you will spend as many hours as possible to make sure that you are successful in whatever career you have. For some of you, at this stage of life, you're living for retirement those final few years that you've got left. And it's all about what are we going to do in retirement? Which holiday home are we going to buy? What cruises are we going to go on? Have we got enough money to survive retirement? For others, it might be image. It might be all about your image. And you're living, going to the gym, making sure that you look good, making sure you have the right clothes, making sure you're on the right social networks. For others, it might be money. Everything that you do, it consumes you. And you're living to make sure you accumulate as much money as possible. It might be that you're looking for love. You might be single and thinking, actually, the thing I'm living for right now, it's got my whole attention and gaze, is is to find someone that I can marry. I want to be loved. It might be comfort. 
you actually just, you want the nice, easy life. I don't want any hassles. I don't want any hardships. I want to enjoy my nice house, my nice car, my nice holidays, my nice family. It's all about comfort. For others, it might be friendship groups. You're living to, to make the friendship groups that you want. I want to ask this question. What is our obsession? What is our obsession in life? Because that's essentially what it is when we're talking about what is it that we're living for. For Paul, his obsession was Christ Jesus. I just want to play a video. This was last Sunday. Sorry to you blue fans. It was great, wasn't it? It was fantastic. But actually, when we talk about what's this city's obsession, it's right there. It's in plain sight for us to see. It's football. That is the city's obsession. As hundreds of thousands went out, and we were out there enjoying it, enjoying the victory of the team. But this city is absolutely obsessed with football. And we know it's totally obsessed, one, because of the numbers, two, this stat that you may have heard on, on football when England plays. Domestic abuse rates rise by 38% when England lose. Shocking. Because there's an obsession here that actually, if we don't win, it affects our entire life. It affects how we feel. It affects our emotions. We're angry and we want to take it out on someone. It's become an obsession because it controls us. And I think this question, what is our obsession, is a really important question that we have to keep coming back to. Uh, for me, recently, many of you know that I run a, a steel firm. I sell steel for a living. I love it. And I hope it's not my obsession. But recently, I had a, a company go bust on me. And it was the first debt that I'd taken uh, as a company. And it was a large debt, really large debt, uninsured. And it was a huge shock of this company going bust. And... The consequences, as I heard this, started to dawn on me. That's it. This money's gone. It's gone. And the question is, is this business going to survive? The feelings of injustice are really hard to take when something like this happens. It's difficult to handle. But what that experience did do for me, it allowed me to reflect again. What am I living for? Has money become my obsession? Has it become my security that I fall back on? I started to ask some really important questions. If this business folds, is it the end of the world for me? Is that how it's going to feel? Because if it does, I've got a problem. If it's become my everything, there's a problem. Thankfully, I can honestly say that it hasn't ruined my joy. I can honestly say it's actually confirmed how utterly meaningless it would be to build one, one's life on something that is here today and gone tomorrow. But I want to say this, when it comes to looking at what is our obsession in life, it's not just some of the obvious things that I've mentioned that we need to assess when it comes to asking the question, how are we doing with treasuring and magnifying Christ in our life? Terry Virgo, who started New Frontiers Churches, tells a story about um, being asked to come and speak at um, Spring Harvest. And he was asked to do four days on the trot. And he was given the topic of Jesus Christ from the Gospel of Mark. 
this is what you'd like to speak on, Terry. And he talks about how his initial reaction was, oh, no, I want to speak on the church. And he said, in that moment, there was a conviction of the spirit that just came on, came on him as he, as he suddenly felt this thing. And he said it in his head, and he suddenly thought, what am I doing? Yes, I love the church, but what have I just done? What have I just thought? That I would prefer to speak on the church of Christ rather than on the person of Christ. And he talked about how actually we need to watch that the good things, many of these things are good things that we do, that they don't take center stage. Okay, that actually we keep Christ central in our lives as the central obsession in our lives. You know, Christianity is all about a God who created mankind. He's given us free roam, hasn't he, to enjoy his creation on planet Earth. And when you look at his story or history, we're showing throughout Scripture that actually, as mankind, we constantly obsess over created things rather than the creator of all things. And yet, this is the beautiful story. Even in this knowledge, God sees our hearts. He sees us turning to other idols. He chose to love us through this, to forgive us, and to finally deal with our hearts once and for all. And he did this by sending his one and only son to planet Earth to show us really what love looks like, to show us what it means to lay down your life for those who reject you, to show us how to care for those who are unlovely, To show us actually what a secure hope looks like. To show us the very mysteries and the depths of God. He wants to show you and I what it is to be accepted for who we are. To be loved in spite of our ugliness. To be celebrated by the one who actually deserves all of the glory and honor. And I want to say this, when we realize how much God adores and dotes on us, what he's given up for us, then I think we're left absolutely ruined by his grace and his love. I just want to read that verse out again from Philippians 3. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. John 15 talks about remaining in me as I remain in you. From this verse, I want to say to us, folks, that knowing Christ as our Lord is to be our obsession. It's to be our addiction, actually. We know that with addiction, it doesn't matter what is going on. Or where you are, it's the only thing you can think of. And with addiction, you will go to great lengths to get where you need or to get what you need. And um, I remember, I have to say, I can't say I've been addicted as such to many things. But I remember seeing my wife at first and, um, and courting her. And, do you know, it was like I was addicted to her. I was intoxicated by her beauty. I still am, obviously. 
and her care for people was beautiful. And I couldn't stop thinking about her. And we lived in different cities. And I remember going to great lengths just to see each other and spend time with each other. And we were sort of six hours apart. And at the, at the whim of a hat, you'd go, do you know what? I'm jumping on the train at, at 8 o'clock at night, and I'm going to travel to Brighton or to Birmingham, wherever she was. She did two different years. And um, I want to say this, though. That was beautiful, and there was a sense of addiction. But when we talk about God Almighty, we're talking about one who will never hurt us. Okay, and the reality is, I can hurt my wife with the things that I do. We're talking about one who will never let us down. We sang about that this morning, didn't we? Who is always attentive and there for us. I want to say God is absolutely intoxicating. It's why in, in David in Psalm 63 could write, and this was when he's in the desert of Judah, you, God, oh my God, earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. The very thing he should be yearning for is water, and yet it is God's that he is yearning for. So, to live as Christ is to want to magnify and exalt Jesus with the way we live. It's to be obsessed with this end in our lives. He's to be our addiction. I just want to say, it's to be our addiction, not our addition. Okay, and that is so often the case for us as we live it out. He becomes this addition that we think is helpful in certain situations. And yes, we're going to church, therefore he's my addiction. But he becomes this add-on, this addition. And he's never meant to be that. Okay? We're to be consumed with him, our Savior. To die is gain. You've got this little add-on on the back. To die is gain. What this means, if you're living for anything else, if your obsession is your career, then death stops it dead in its tracks. Death is not good news if your obsession is career. If your obsession is money, then death is not good news. Because you can't take it with you. And the reason Paul can truly say that to die is gain is very simply that if living for him is all about enjoying and treasuring his relationship with Jesus, then in death, this is good news. Because death is not the end. But for Christians, we know there's a certainty of coming face to face with Jesus Christ, with his Lord and Savior. So death for Paul means getting to spend more time with Jesus. That's why it's good news. Any other obsession that we have means death is painful and bad news and loss. Verses 22. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul here is starting to ponder on which he desires most. And I think we need to be really careful in this passage because there's a temptation to suggest that Paul is actually despairing of life. And I don't think that is what he's doing at all. He doesn't have a death wish, Paul. Okay? That's not what he's doing either. He's not looking to walk into death. Let's put myself in the most dangerous situation because that's just better. No. He's torn, okay? He knows that to live in the flesh is going to be fruitful for him. 
There was no hint here that he won't bear any fruit. Actually, it's all about he will bear fruit. He knows that by enjoying God and desiring to magnify him in the way that he lives, he's going to produce fruit. He knows that what God has said, the promises that he's made, is that we will be bear fruit. It's a promise. John 15 says it. He has made us fruitful. It's not something we have to muster up or jump through certain hoops for. Paul knows this is who God has made me. He's made me fruitful while I'm on this earth. But what we see here is Paul's honest disposition. If he could choose honestly death or to live, he's saying, I would prefer, I would long to be with Christ. So I want to ask, have you, have you ever thought about this? Have you ever faced death? What would your honest answer be to this question? What would you prefer? And I think, looking at myself and reflecting for me, and for many of us, I think the most honest answer is that we often treasure other things more than we treasure Christ on this earth, don't we? And so our answer is no. I can't honestly say that I would prefer to be dead. And... I have a condition, many of you know, called aplastic anemia that I've had for many years. And four years ago, I guess I was put into a very similar position here to some degree. Um, I was given the opportunity of my, well, my health was acute, so it had gone right down. And we had to make a decision on treatments. And one of the treatments was a bone marrow transplant. And I have two matches, and I went through all of the the tests that they do. And I was given a 15% chance, you, you get given a percentage chance of death. And I was given a 15% chance of death. And they worked it out, you know, I don't know how they do these things, but they do them somehow. Um, and that was my percentage at that current time in life. And so I, ha- I was sitting there having to make this decision with young children and a wife. Do I go for this treatment with this percentage chance of death going on? And there was a wrestle going on in my heart. And for me, What was the thing that was stopping me from going for the treatment? Honestly, it was my wife and my children. Okay? I love my wife, and I want to see my kids grow up. I want to be an active father in their lives. And do you know, I actually believe these are good, godly feelings to have, aren't they? But I did have to get my mindset into the right place of being totally content with either option. Because God is the only one who knows the hour and the time that we will face death. And so I found this, I found myself in this very strange place of knowing that, you know what, if this is my time, praise God, I'm going to come face to face with him. And yet at the same time, there's this, this desire. God's given me children. He's given me a wife. And I want to be able to be with them. And um, I just want to say this, this life on earth We don't know what the future holds for any of us. What we do know is that we will face death. And it is just a blip compared to eternity. I know it's really hard to get our heads around. But I want to say, what is your relationship with Jesus like? Okay? Do you enjoy spending time with him? Because this time is just a blip. And we're going to come and spend eternity with him. And if you struggle now to enjoy spending time with him, I think you're going to really struggle in eternity. 
It's really, really important. This is life-changing stuff. You're going to spend eternity with Christ Jesus. Do you know him? Do you enjoy him? Finally, we read that for Paul. He wants to remain on their accounts. His motive for staying on planet Earth is his love for others. I want to say his instinct isn't selfish, is it? There's a selfless love and a caring for others that he has. Verse 25 says, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. We've learned that Paul's first passion in life is, his, is to enjoy Christ. And his second seems to be to see others enjoying Christ. Staying meant having the opportunity to share his great passion with others. That's his motivation. I want to say that faith and passion are very infectious things, guys. And I have to be honest, for me, as I, as I, as I mentioned at the beginning, this passage has had a profound effect on me this week. I think so often we get distracted by other things. And we start to look to other things to satisfy us. And I've just felt this week that God has been redirecting my gaze and focus back on to my Savior, Christ. The one who lives in unapproachable light, yet is the light of the world. He's remarkable, isn't he? John Piper, a famous Bible preacher, coined this phrase. He said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. I'm going to repeat that. God is most glorified in us when we are are most satisfied in him. And Piper would say that this phrase that he's coined is from this passage. It's where it's come from. I don't know what you would describe this morning as your obsession. It may not be Jesus right now. But I want to urge us as Freedom Church to find ways of cultivating this passion for him. I want, to allow, I want us to allow God to redirect our gaze him and to give us a thirst and desire for him that is so unwavering. I want a church full of people who have genuine, authentic faith that are deeply in love with Christ. Do you know why? Because that sort of church is going to see a city reached. It's the only way. It's that sort of church that is not easily shaken when trouble and hardship and death come. Because it's that sort of church that is Christ-centered in everything they do. I want to end by just playing a video. And this video, it's funny, we played it quite a few times in church. And I think, as I thought about this video, I thought, oh, no. We've seen it. We've seen it. I don't really want to play it. It's three minutes long. And I want to provoke you if you're feeling, oh, but we've seen this video. He is Christ. Is he your obsession? Just watch our, let's watch our hearts when it comes to hearing about who he is. And then I'm going to ask the worship band to come up and to, uh, to lead us in worship um, as we end.